This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Freedom doesn't mean anything unless you have wealth or land. Hello, I have got news, big news. Fox has a Netflix show. Um, I laugh because that's an amazing thing to say. It's called Explained. And the reason I am excited about it is not just that it's a Netflix show. It's that it's one of the best things we've ever done. It is as pure a distillation of what we are trying to do here with Explainer Journalism as we have ever been able to produce. Each episode of Explained chooses a big topic, something that matters in people's lives. It drives daily headlines. It shapes the world we live in. And we dive in to try to understand the big picture of it. So much of what we do in the media is is narrow and ephemeral and about whatever just happened. We have such a recency bias. This show is an effort to get out of that. It's about the things in our world that are important and not just new. The first three episodes are up now. There's one on designer DNA, CRISPR, and gene editing, and, and the question of how we're taking charge of human evolution ourselves. There's one on monogamy, how it evolved and the ways in which it is being challenged in the modern era. And there's one on the racial wealth gap. I am an executive producer of all of these, so I'm involved in all of these as an editor. But along with Joe Posner, I reported and wrote the racial wealth gap episode, and I learned, I learned a huge amount doing it. The genesis of that episode is actually in this podcast. I had Tanasi Coates on last year, and I asked him what would persuade him that the era of white supremacy in America was over. He said, and he said this quickly, he said, closing the racial wealth gap. That's what would persuade him that white supremacy was over. I had never heard that used as the core measure before, and, and it made me want to understand more about it, how we got to the point that the median white family now is about $13 in wealth for every dollar the median black family has, and why that gap has grown so much in recent years, why that's one of the racial indicators that has gotten worse, not better, in the modern era. As part of that reporting, I read a really extraordinary book called The Color of Money by Mercer Baradaran. Her book is about a part of this story that I had not heard before, the credit part, the way we segregated and racialized the financial engines of this country and, and, and what that did as a result. MRSA is a big part of the episode, and my ask to you is don't just listen to this podcast, but, but go watch the episode first, because everything here will make more sense after you see that. And just in general, I'll make this ask. Please check out the show. If you like this podcast, if I've built up any credibility with you at all, believe me when I say we've created something special that I think you're really going to like. Um, just go to Netflix, search Explained or Vox, you'll find it. Give it 15 minutes. I think you'll really love it. 
But after I interviewed Marissa for the Netflix show, there was so much she said that I wanted to hear more on, so much that I couldn't fit into the episode, that I asked her here to continue the conversation on the racial wealth gap, on the way poverty is constructed and understood in this society, on postal banking, which is an idea that she has been very associated with but is now moving into the political discussion. Um, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who uh, Mercer has been advising, has a bill on this now. She's got a perspective on this, uh, on one of our toughest problems as a society that I think people need to hear. So it's with great pleasure that I present this conversation with Mercer Baradaran. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to begin in the racial wealth gap, and I wanted to begin where I think most people understand the story as starting, which is slavery. After the Emancipation Proclamation, there's a recognition that if former slaves are actually going to be free, they're going to need some wealth, some land, something economic to base that freedom on. And there's a movement to give them that, and that movement fails. What happened? Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is one of the great revisions in history that is is actually being corrected over time is what happens during that Reconstruction era. And for a long time, there was this revisionary history, this retelling of Reconstruction being that, oh, well, you know, Black people got their freedom and they were irresponsible and Reconstruction failed. And um, so the South had to sort of regain control through, you know, what otherwise would be sort of free market or democratic means. But but actually, there was a real robust debate. The freedom doesn't mean anything unless you have wealth or land. Right? This is where the 40 acres and a mule comes up. But other other actual discussions on how do we account for hundreds of years of exploitation, and not only that, but an equal footing in the democratic process. And a lot of people said, look, the right to vote and be part of the political process doesn't become useful unless you have the land and the the, the wealth to be able to back up that power. And what happens is Johnson becomes president and vetoes all of the real meaningful parts of Reconstruction. And uh, as Du Bois famously says, you know, Reconstruction failed and it birthed the 15th Amendment. And and he understands at the time of the 15th Amendment, the right to vote was basically would be subverted very quickly. And it was. And and what the free slaves got instead uh, was these rights that were on paper that were never able to get executed because the Klan and, and the Southern sort of Democratic Party you know, used violence to keep them away from the polls. Um, the other thing they got was this uh, Freedman Savings Bank. And so the theory, the idea here was, look, um, we're not going to give you land. It's actually better for you if you save up your own money and buy the land yourself that is more moral and that's more, you know, you'll feel better about that. And so this uh, Freedman Savings Bank is open. There's hundreds of branches. It seems to be backed by the full faith and credit of the federal government because it is an act of Congress signed into law by Abraham Lincoln himself. Now, he doesn't you know, he, he's not he doesn't stick around to uh, manage it, nor do the philanthropists who are on the board of the bank. Uh, what happens is it becomes this magnet for graft and plunder and speculation. And the white manager of the bank, Henry Cook, um, speculates in today would be billions of dollars of savings from free slaves, puts it in the railroad bond market, which is the subprime market of the day. And free slaves lose about 50 percent of their uh, savings. And these are savings that were hard earned. I mean, this is during the era of sharecropping and convict leasing. And 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 they lose it. And, you know, W.E. Du Bois says of the failure, not even 10 additional years of slavery could have throttled the thrift of the freedmen as a failure of this bank. So it's a real blow and one that we don't think about. I mean, they're really, you know, Du Bois compared it to 10 additional years of slavery because it really was this 
this plunder of black wealth that um, reverberates and it, it it diminishes the trust that um, the community has in, in any government help and also in, in, in banks. And, and you see that linger for much longer than you would uh, expect. So let me, I, I, there are a couple of threads I want to pick up on there, but one is, is early in there because I, I want to hit something foundational, this idea that you need wealth of some sort in order for political freedoms to really be real freedoms. You have you have this Frederick Douglass quote in the book that I have basically not stopped thinking about since I read it. So I'm just going to read it here. The history of civilization shows that no people can well rise to a high degree of mental or even moral excellence without wealth. A people uniformly poor and compelled to struggle for barely a physical existence will be dependent and despised by their neighbors and will finally despise themselves. Can you unspool that quote and the thinking around it a little bit for me? Yeah, I mean, Frederick Douglass really understood that wealth um, needed to precede any sort of integration into the, the populace, right? Without wealth, you can't protect your rights. Without property and the means to back it, you you are going to get, you're going to be labor. You're going to be capital, you're going to be labor. And being labor is uh, being exploited. And that's essentially what happens to um, blacks as soon as they're uh, sort of emancipated from slavery, instead of giving them land, which would have allowed them to use subsistence crops to feed themselves and to have political autonomy, they are forced into sharecropping. And 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 becoming labor instead of owning capital really diminishes, I mean, that's an understatement, but but um, eradicates any ability to join the, the populace, the political sphere. And this is a place where Booker T. Washington comes after Frederick Douglass, also understanding that wealth is really important. I mean, all of the leaders, black leaders throughout history, you know, Washington, Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, across the span, you know, maybe they were, you know, diverged in other ways, but all of them stress this idea of wealth accumulation as a path to political power. But the question was, what comes first? political power or economic power? And what can you do with economic power to gain political power? And Booker T. Washington has this idea that, look, if a man, if a black man has wealth, he will be respected. And white society will so respect this black wealth that they will just voluntarily allow them to integrate. You know, he says, if you have a mortgage on a man's house, on a white man's house, he's going to respect you. You know, the problem with Booker T. Washington, he's, he's just, I mean, so optimistic, but also so naive as to not to undercut some of his other ideas, but this idea that wealth would lead to respect from the white community, didn't he didn't contemplate that perhaps if you owned the mortgage on the white man's house, that he would form a mob and come and uh, harass you and kill you. Um, I mean, this is actually where history went, you know, in the Tulsa riots and the formation of the Klan and the targeting of black property can you, owners. Can you actually talk about the Tulsa riots for a minute? Because this is one of those chapters in American history we don't talk about that much but I think yeah. needs to be told. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, it's not. There's other riots, right? There's you know, the Forsyth, there's Wilmington, Delaware, there's several others. But the Tulsa riot, you know, begins as do a lot of these, unfortunately, race uh, events with a, a white woman uh, alleging that a black teenager sort of harassed her on a you know elevator. But that sort of is the spark. But it's a tinderbox. Um, and what had happened in Tulsa is that the black community, through general, you're lifting of all boats, but through the oil wealth of Tulsa, had really gained some power and money. And they had built a 
you know, Black Wall Street, right in the middle of Tulsa, and they had this beautiful church and a lot of institutions, and uh, they were well armed, and the NAACP was active, so they were not, you know, doing the Booker T. Washington route of just like blending in and not making noise. They were just like, you know, we're going to protect our rights and our property, and and the white uh, community had gotten really resentful, and there was a lot of bubbling sort of discontent before uh, this elevator incident. And then the elevator incident really just throws a match on the fire. And the white mob goes around the courthouse where this um, uh, young man is being held. And, you know, the black uh, community shows up with with their firearms and, you know, someone shoots in the air and it becomes the scene of carnage and devastation. And um, for several days, I mean, all of the black property is burned, and and the black community members of I mean, whites die also, but but the black Wall Street is devastated, and they leave Tulsa. They're forced to leave as refugees, and are really just uh, scattered across the country as as refugees. And and it was a, a a message, you know, not just to the Tulsans, but to but every black community. You know, hi, hide your wealth. Don't poke the bear that is this white animosity toward black wealth. You have a, a, an account in the book from Tulsa, uh, and I, I don't know who it's from, but I, I just think it's a remarkable piece of primary uh, documentation where somebody says, the Negro in Oklahoma has shared in the sudden prosperity has come to many of his white brothers, and there are some colored men there who are wealthy. This fact has caused a bitter resentment on the part of the lower order of whites who feel these colored men, members of an inferior race, are exceedingly presumptuous in achieving greater economic prosperity than they who are members of a divinely ordered superior race. In one case where a colored man owned and operated a printing plant with $25,000 of printing machinery in it, the leader of the mob that set fire to and destroyed the plant was a linotype operator employed for years by the colored owner at $48 per week. And that feels to me like a very direct what happens when the man you believe to be your racial inferior owns the mortgage of your house kind of example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have had, especially during that era, a society that was marked by race. Um, and it was very much, you know, the populism of the South. Uh, at, at first, it was, you know, we were all, were all in the ditches together. I mean, this is Frederick Douglass and some of the early populist leaders had said, look, black, you know, black workers and white workers, we should join forces. But there was a strategic move in the early 1900s where it made more sense for the Democratic Party to give white men and, and women uh, superiority over blacks to, you know, for, for political gains. And and this was uh, quite successful and has been throughout time. When you think of your skin as making you deserving of more and, uh, you know, especially of wealth, and you have this other group come in and start upstaging you and owning more stuff, violence is what happens. And, and we're seeing this, I mean, you see this throughout time. You see it, you know, uh, with other minority groups in other regions as well, when you have a group of you know minorities come in and upstage that sort of majority clan or tribe, um, you're, you're going to lead to violence. And so this is uh, not just an American problem, but I think it's an American problem that we haven't really come to terms with yet. You know, we, we have had white policy control of the levers of political and economic power that has been purposefully deployed um, through either violence or contracts or legislation to keep black populations and other minority populations away from wealth creation and uh, which, you know, would upset that uh, power dynamic. So one thing that now I want to bring into this conversation, your book has a thread in it that has been really influential in my own thinking, 
which is from the earliest moment in this conversation, I mean, from from right after the Civil War, you immediately get into this question of any kind of recompense, any kind of even consideration becoming reverse discrimination. And, and you quote President Johnson vetoing the Freedmen's Bill, which would have been something that both created more economic opportunities, some amount of, I don't even know if you want to call it reparations. I mean, this is wealth that, that African-Americans had built in this country. They just hadn't been given access to it. But he vetoes a Freedmen's Bill and he says, speaking of the freed slaves, it is earnestly hoped that instead of wasting away they will, by their own efforts, establish for themselves a condition of respectability and prosperity. And there's immediately this idea that after, I mean, what is at this point centuries of slavery, that now that slavery is over, despite everything else happening around it, all the other kinds of oppression, all the violence, all the sort of being locked out of education and jobs and social networks and everything else, that, OK, now there is something we've decided to call equal rights under the law. And if from this moment on you aren't equal, well, that's really on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you often see this throughout time at pivot points when there is this, um, you know, disruption, so to speak, of uh, the social order. So as a civil war obviously was a hugely traumatic one for the Southern social order, um, for the country at large. And you see it again in civil rights. You see it in other various stages in history. And what you see is a social movement that grants, you know, minorities or, you know, oppressed populations a right. And then immediately, sometimes it takes a little bit, but usually it's immediate. You've had this backlash. And a lot of times that backlash uses the language of the very group that fought for that freedom from oppression, use that same language to subvert those claims. So the slaves were saying, we need, we want to participate in capitalism. We, we, we are capital. You, you, our bodies are being used to exploit and gain profits. And we, we want to be free, right? Obviously. And then you have Johnson, I mean, like a year after emancipation saying, okay, if you, you want freedom, go at it, right? This is, this is freedom is you get nothing, right? You get no land, and no help. And you can, he says in there, in that same veto um, document that you will be able to get fair wages for your employment. I mean, yeah, right. In the South that is controlled by violence and, and the Democratic Party, there was no free wages. I mean, immediately the South restructures. James Baldwin says it was reconstruction is a bargain between the North and the South where the slaves are freed and delivered right back to their masters. I mean, that it was just, I mean, sharecropping was essentially just a reconfiguration just to keep blacks growing cotton, because that was hugely important for the Southern economy. And so, so yes, this language of capitalism and free markets and freedom is used to undercut the claims that were also based on those very lofty goals. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. 
Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I want to move this forward in history because some of the stories, I think the story people know. But, but then there's this feeling of, yeah, well, that was 1865. That was a long time ago. By now, certainly by now, the wealth gap should have closed. And if it hasn't, that's on the African-American community. One of the things that was unusual to me about your argument in your book is the focus on the way we locked African-Americans out of the credit system. That is how we create wealth. And we did it in ways people often don't recognize and in ways that we often don't tell that story. So I wanted to trace that. But but first, I want to lay out some of the, the framework you have. How does the credit system create wealth? Yeah, so one of the things that I've stressed in both of my books is, is that credit and, and monetary policy, believe what you will in free markets and how robust your sort of, you know, ideals of capitalism are, that thinking and that those theories and models don't apply when it comes to credit and monetary policy. Credit and monetary policy have been, you know, since the beginning, you know, since Alexander Hamilton's National Bank have been tied in with federal policy. And so a lot of the credit mechanisms, the, the 99% of the credit mechanisms by which anyone gains wealth, right? So you you gain wealth here in the United States and in most other places, usually through leverage, uh, through bank lending, through credit. No one just kind of creates their own gold and creates their own wealth, right? You have to have that initial um, credit allocation from from something, right? So early on, it was homestead acts. You got land from the federal government. By the way, that was not capitalism. That was straight, you know, social engineering went to usually whites. But credit becomes the sort of 20th century model for wealth creation. And so the government, you know, post-New Deal really creates several robust credit structures that deal with student loans and mortgage loans that create the middle class wealth that makes America the model of the robust middle class, right? When Nixon goes and and shows off the American middle class house, people are just aghast at other countries. But this was all created by federal policy through the FHA, through the HOLC. And so credit launches people into wealth. And in the, the majority of the credit mechanisms that were created in the New Deal, blacks were left out purposefully. They put red lines around uh, the ghettos. And this is a story that is more being focused on now. It wasn't for a while. People didn't quite understand how the the government policy interrelated with housing policy. But they're very much, they all stemmed from these government bureaucratic decisions to keep out certain places from that credit. So credit and the mechanism for wealth isn't shared equally. And so blacks have not been able to own houses and get student loans for much of this century in the same way that whites had. So one of the things that to me is interesting in this story is the way that the effects of racism in this country become justifications for further policy that entrenches the effects of racism. That at a certain point, people move from saying, well, I'm doing this because 
African-Americans are inferior or because a white race is superior and, and has been promised the inheritance of the earth. And then they just moved to doing it because, well, it's not profitable to lend there. It's not safe to put a mortgage on a home there. Could you talk through that a bit? Because that that is one of these things where there's a real moment where we move to justifying things in ways that we would now look back and agree, well, that that's a, that's a horrible thing to say, to justifying things, which to some degree we do even now, in ways where we say, well, that's just capitalism. That's just the invisible hand. I mean, you can't, you can't make a bank lend there. Absolutely. I mean, I think you look at the gods of each era and, and how those gods were deployed to justify sort of current inequalities, right? So, you know, in the dawn of slavery and, and up until early 1900s, you have actual God, you know, the actual God, you know, and the Bible being used to to prove um, that blacks are inferior and that whites are superior. And it is their divine right to uh, enslave and to keep black support. I mean, you, you literally have preachers saying, writing books about capital and labor, saying God deemed whites the owners of capital and blacks labor. Right? So God is used. And then God sort of falls out of favor because we've got, you know, Darwinism. And um, so you have social Darwinism and uh, some of that genetic, really sort of tragic turn in, in uh, science, pop science that, you know, you've got the skull measurements and, and these really fancy looking charts that show certain races, you know, white, certain whites at the top. And then you've got this technical chart. And then you've got African-Americans at the bottom. You've got, you know, Mongols uh, step above that. Those are my people, by the way. Hello. <laughs> you know, you have you have these <laughs> you have Scandinavians, right? Like the yeah, 1920s Scand- immigration bill does not love those northern European whites. Right. Irish are really low. Italians are low. And you you have and this is all database. You know, I found one document, an insurance provider uh, in the 1887 writes this insurance screed saying that Blacks are malnourished and uh, they have lower chest measurements than whites. And instead of blaming it on overwork and undernourishment, he says they are going extinct as a race. I mean, this is scientific proof that they are going extinct. And so insurers shouldn't insure black lives. And, And this is sort of standard fare, right? Based on science, by the way, right? So you have that justifying uh, racial inequality. And then, you know, as Hitler sort of takes that to the ultimate level, that comes out of vogue. And what is the new God of our era? It's uh, free markets. It's economic answers to everything. It's just supply and demand. It's the market. And so you look at, if you take a snapshot now, and if you want to justify inequality, you just say, this is how free markets work. You know, it costs more to lend into certain areas. And it certainly does. But looking back, just like peeling, you know, two more layers off of the onion. It's why why does it cost more? Oh, because we've got this history of exclusion, et cetera. But the free market, you know, modeling uh, that goes on is just to say, forget history, right? We have very few economists who study histories to come to their models. It's more sort of theoretical modeling. It's this, the God of the, you know, supply and demand curve and, and monetary policy as a technical God, not one that considers other human aspects. I mean, the market is very much human psychology as it is modeling. But but in this world, I think we have just said this is a free market. And and so what that leads to is this idea, well, why are black communities poorer than white ones? Well, maybe they're just not, they're not that entrepreneurial. Maybe they're not working as hard. Um, maybe they're not taking advantage of all of the ways in which capitalism creates wealth. And, and I think that's what you see a lot uh, now. Well, and so one argument you get in this is, 
Well, yeah, maybe that was true. After all, we've had other minorities in this country who have uh, faced public exclusion. I mean, you you mentioned there has been discrimination against the Irish. There has been discrimination against the Chinese. And over time, they did better. And and doesn't that just prove that there was something unique about the African-American community that has led to the persistence of the wealth gap and, and some of these other outcomes? Yeah, I mean, this is an argument that I get, you know, from <laughs> trolls. You know, what about the you know, uh, Ch- Chinese or, or Jewish immigrants or other groups. And and there's several explanations here. And one is, look, a lot of those groups that were here before the Irish, the Poles, the, the Italians, who were also, you know, relegated and stigmatized, you know, to lower positions, became white with the FHA and the New Deal. So Italians became white. Irish became white. It's actually stunning that the Irish were, weren't white before, but they are now, right? But but really, it was credit policy. And I don't want to overplay this because I think people who are not in the banking world like I am are like, well, wow, what? that seems like an outlandish claim. But really, once you get that home mortgage in Levittown, you're white. You have these Irish and, and Italians who came from these same ghettos, although they were never quite as segregated as blacks were. Uh, becoming white. So one one illustrative example I show in the banking context is um, Bank of Italy, also created during the same era that a lot of these black banks are created. And Bank of Italy joins the FHA, that credit infrastructure that we talked about. Can you can you just give another quick, just like let's spend one moment on the FHA before we get into the story, because yeah. I think it's going to be important to, to lay mm-hmm. this out a little bit. FHA is a New Deal program that does what exactly? Yeah, the FHA is a New Deal program that- Federal Housing Administration. Federal Housing Administration- is a New Deal program that basically creates this massive insurance fund, federal government insurance fund, atop of which private capital can lend freely and it will be insured against default. Before the FHA, every bank had to just hold its mortgages on its books and any losses were felt by the bank and the bank would suffer a run if you know there was some housing crisis or anything like that. So what the New Deal does is create a ton of subsidies that keep banks stable. It infuses trust into the system, but it also unleashes unprecedented amounts of private capital. And the reason it can do it is by insuring all of these funders against loss. So the FHA says, if you lend this kind of mortgage, you know, 30-year fixed, amortized over a certain time, whatever loan-to-value ratio, 5 to 6%, and they, they kind of laid all of these different markers down. If you lend this mortgage, we will insure it against default. So in other words, if that borrower stops paying, we have an insurance mechanism. We will make you good on it. And the the point here was the public, the government, was telling private banks and private investors that we're in this together. This is a partnership and we're going to unleash capital and it's going to benefit everyone. And it did. We forget that government can do stuff like this and only the government can, can do stuff like this. It created unprecedented wealth. It unleashed all of this capital. But the FHA went around and using the HOLC max, the Home Owners Loan Corporation was preceding the FHA. And these maps basically said these are areas of high risk loans and these are areas of lower risk. So lower risk areas you can lend freely to and we will uh, ensure that higher risk areas you cannot lend. And the way that they determine risk is almost purely by race. And I've seen these FHA write-ups, I mean, you've got surveyors going in, and there's one in Atlanta, um, actually, one of my students just dug up for me and showed me, you know, this area right by Morehouse was uh, black professionals, and it says this on the profile, the FHA profile, black professionals, there's colleges here, but it's 100% Negro, so you're going to avoid this area. So they redlined that, 
And then there was another whiter area, 100% white, and it says like percentage of Negroes and foreign born. That was on the form and that was right up at the top. And what kind, you know, what kind of workers? So there's like, okay, blue collar, white workers, but percentage of Negroes was zero. And that got a green light. And so you could lend into that area and not into the black professional area. And so you have the creation of middle class white wealth and the diminution of black wealth as it was. Because if you can't get an FHA guaranteed mortgage or a GI Bill loan, you can't get any mortgage during that time. So, but why? Let's now let's go back to the Irish and Italian example. Mm-hmm. Given the prevailing ideologies of the time, why isn't there a percentage of Irish? Or I'll use my own example, like the percentage of Jews in that area. W- what happens if they decide to focus us now on, on African Americans and not on these other groups who, you know, were, were also the targets of a lot of social stigma? Yeah. So this is. I mean, there were yellow areas, and yellows were more foreign-born, so more Jews, uh, more unpreferable groups, right? So the thing with racism is that it it definitely trickles down into the, the marketability of a house and a neighborhood. So the desirability of your neighbors very much affects the pricing of the home. And this, the mapping, this red lining actually reflects, more than creates, reflects the that day thinking on race. And really, I mean, it, you can't say any other way, but whites have w- wanted less to live near blacks than any other racial group. And and that is what is shown in these um, bureaucratic maps. It's not like the bureaucrats were these white hooded Klansmen who went around and were like, oh, you know, we're just going to, you know, screw the blacks. And in and, and these they were just saying, like, this is a reflection of the market. And so because blacks had been so severely segregated in those areas, it was really easy to just draw those red lines. And the other racists had already um, started assimilating. And it was harder, actually, to to assimilate blacks because of the racial sort of hierarchies uh, that we have. So, you know, Bank of Italy, like I said, it, it gets into this FHA loans, right? And so Italians are able to get these loans abroad. And these are soldiers coming back from fighting in wars. And, and black soldiers are also coming back, but not, not getting the loans. And Bank of Italy sort of expands all through... California, and it, and it becomes Bank of America. So Bank of America today is what Bank of Italy is. And it reflects sort of what happened with other, with the Italians themselves and with the Irish and, and to some extent with the Jews. I mean, not to say that we don't, we certainly have a lot of anti-Semitism that happens, but those wealth mechanisms were opened to some of these groups and, and they never were uh, for blacks. So I want to draw two big themes out here. One is that when we have a discussion, say, about reparations or any kind of recompense, there is this idea of, oh, well, you know, people wanted equal rights under the law, but 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 that's a kind of inequality. I mean, special help, that that's racism of its own kind. And something I think that is important here to, to draw out is that to create the American middle class took a lot of, quote unquote, special help. There was a lot of energy and work that went towards lifting up some groups, did not go to, to lifting up others. It wasn't a raw form of capitalism. It wasn't just people's hard work and energy and thrift. You know, if you had not had the FHA and not had this massive support of the mortgage market, then the main driver of the middle class, which was housing wealth, maybe doesn't happen. And um, and for those who got locked out of that driver, it definitely doesn't happen. So th- there's a way in which that I think is really toxic, in which we see some forms of help as natural or, or some forms of accomplishment is natural. Of course, that group, you know, has done great. 
And then other forms of intervention is unnatural. The mortgage interest deduction is fine and well and good, but you know, God forbid somebody else gets a, a different kind of subsidy. And that way in which we categorize some forms of help, in which in some ways we've actually made invisible some forms of help, both past and ongoing, but made very visible the outcomes for those who haven't gotten help and then blamed them for them. It feels like a way in which our conversation is both is both insane but but very, very entrenched. It makes it very hard to talk about any of this stuff clearly because you end up having this conversation that is not true between sort of, you know, natural, quote unquote, natural forms of accomplishment and like artificial help for now what are seen to be favored groups. Absolutely. You know, Martin Luther King says when there's a depression in the white communities, you call it a depression, you know, and you pump help in. This is what the New Deal was. But if there's a depression or mass unemployment in the black community, you call it a social problem. You know, I would frame it as this zero-sum thinking versus non-zero-sum thinking. When when we think about the opiate crisis or, you know, lots of people have written lovingly about this, right? Um, uh, you know, we've got to do something because this is about all of us. Nobody says, oh, well, let them die. It's this we are all in this together, this non-zero-sum thinking. When we talk about aid to people of the dominant white, let's say, race, and then when it's to blacks or other minorities, it's, it's zero-sum thinking. The more they get, I lose something, right? So if Mexicans, you know, are, are coming over the border, they're taking our jobs, as opposed to we've got massive unemployment. And if you're thinking a white person, they're like, oh, we have to fix this. We have to make more, more opportunities because you're thinking about it in non-zero-sum. We all gain when people that look like us are better off. Whereas if people that don't look like us are better off, we lose. And that is just the psychological uh, limitation that we have. And, and it's once we've sort of tribalized the country based on race, you really don't see a majoritarian democracy creating benefits for minorities that are stigmatized over time in this way. I think that is such a well put point that actually does help me see something a little bit clearer because I, I think a, a fair counter argument to some of the discussion we're having here is to say, well, are you denying that there are any social problems in the black community or in any community you're talking about? I mean, you know, out of wedlock births and, you know, there, there there is crime. I mean, people do make bad decisions. But your point here that, yes, definitely that does happen both as cause and as effect of some of these uh, of some of these outcomes and policies, but that when they happen in different communities, we treat them differently. The opioid example compared to how we looked at crack cocaine a generation before is so powerful. There is so much sympathy for communities racked by opioids compared to how much judgment there was for communities racked by crack cocaine. It, it, it is so different despite the fact that, you know, if you want to frame addiction and certainly the, the beginning of using drugs as a choice, well, it's all choices. But how we how we see those choices is a lot to do with how naturally our sympathy extends to the group making them. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, social science has come a long way in recent years, but th those lessons haven't been taken to heart. And and I, I see as the lesson from a lot of this, you know, even behavioral economics, scarcity sort of mindset, this idea that put anyone in a certain situation, in a in a poverty situation, in a high crime situation, and anyone would act that way. And I, you know, I fundamentally believe this. I think we are much more um, we much more succumb to circumstances around us. I mean, look at Italians used to be the sort of crime-ridden um, race, and now we don't think of, of them that way. But look, you put a bunch of low-income people in a 
a hotbed of, of a ghetto, right? And you don't allow for other job opportunities and you're going to have violence. Same with the Irish, right? I mean, there's a paddy wagon was meant to be about uh, Irish criminals, you know? And and now, you know, we say, well, blacks are, are, are criminals. And it, is it that they are criminals or is it that a certain set of social factors, right? You've got really poor um, schools. You've got dilapidated housing. You've got concentrated poverty. And that would make anyone a criminal. You know, and not not to say that there is more crime, because I, I actually think the data is kind of mixed. There's crime everywhere. But but really, I mean, the idea is it is not this explanation that is, oh, well, black communities make bad decisions and therefore uh, don't deserve our sympathy. And, and when whites get into these situations, it becomes this um, commentary on all of the ways in which society is failing the opiate addicted states. I mean, this is I mean, Andrew Sullivan's beautiful piece on the opiate epidemic. It's, it's something she says this, right? A lot of these pieces on the opiate ec- epidemic talk about how society has failed these regions, how manufacturing has left, how we don't have social connections. And and instead of saying, like, if you're an addict, it's your fault, um, we're saying this is society's fault and it's our job to deal with it. And we, we never said that with crack. It was these are bad decisions being made. Same with financial literacy and financial education. I mean, we're all bad with money. Some of us just uh, have more buffer. Our mistakes can get um, sucked by our big savings accounts and our parents who can throw a lifeline. And yet when you see people like in the payday lending cycle or or this credit, these credit mechanisms that deprive the wealth of, of a lot of these communities that are deprived of actual good credit, you talk about the first thing policymakers say is, well, financial education. You need to make better decisions. And I, and I don't I don't buy that. So one, the other thing here that I think is important is the way in which then the outcome of racism becomes the justification for it. You've talked about this, obviously, in the in the FHA context. But one of the things that I think is tricky here is what do you do when the arguments people are making are valid? So you take whites in that era. When we have a clip in the Netflix episode that, that you're in of, of a white woman saying, yeah, I think, if, I think if the Negro moves here in any significant number, property values will go down. We have a story that Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker tells when his family tried to get a house, they had to basically set up a sting operation where a, a white family went in and made the offer that Booker's family had made and had been rejected. Then on closing day, Booker's family showed up, his father, with a civil rights lawyer the realtor punches Booker's father's lawyer in the face, sicks a dog on Booker's father, but then in the end falls to his knees begging not to move into this area in part because the realtor isn't just racist. He thinks he'll destroy his real estate business because whites will begin moving out. You know, and, and you have things like busing and you know, there, there are a lot of these places where sometimes the cost is psychological, but sometimes a community is looking around and, and rightly or wrongly, morally or immorally – they are seeing a cost that either they will have to pay in the case of reparations or a cost will be imposed on them in the case of the changing nature of their community or their kid being bused to a school they don't think is as good. And they say, I don't want to pay that. This wasn't my fault. And then it's very, very powerful at that point to say, and also, like, why are we paying it at all? Like, this is their fault. You know, the, look at the situation in their community. If it wasn't like that, we wouldn't feel this way. That's where this conversation gets really hard. Absolutely. I mean, you have this loop of... Racism leading to lower market values and then lower market values actually incentivizing homeowners who otherwise would 
are not racist to keep blacks out of their neighborhood because it really was about, look, if we have a certain proportion of blacks, we are no longer qualifying for those FHA loans. And so we can't even let a few black families come in because, you know, either Cory Booker's family or people like Ashen Sweet, who is this doctor that moves into this middle class area, they're a harbinger for the hordes of other black ghetto residents that are going to come in and flip our neighborhood. And that flip is very real. And that's one of the things I highlight in the book is when a neighborhood flips over into either majority black or a little bit black, and all it takes is 10% for that flip to occur, you have complete white flight, a turnover, and a diminishment in property values. So the white residents are actually not just motivated by racism, they're motivated by capital accumulation, keeping, you know, it's a very sane economic choice to have racial covenants in your house contract. It's sane to join a homeowners association to keep blacks out of your neighborhood. And before that, to join the mob to push out the first black residents who may be a doctor, but your property values are on the line. So there is this real way where you're seeing this right now also play out in the school debates. I mean, nothing shows this white anxiety of their schools being turned over than to becoming, quote unquote, problematic schools than when a school district comes and says, "Okay, we're going to move some black kids into your school. And this is north and south. I mean, everywhere um, you have people freaking out, you know, people who are otherwise I voted for Obama twice and I'm a liberal, you know, freaking out when the specter of their kids being in a school that becomes a school of more black students. And it, it never fails to surprise me, even though it shouldn't. But I think this anxiety of this is where you see white privilege, right, where the hoarding of resources and the ability to exclude non-whites from your privileged spaces really comes out and, and, and shows how economics and policy are tied into those very real fears of, of other races that we still have. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So now I want to join this to, to the conversation of about credit and banking again, because I think this is an important part of the story that I certainly didn't know that well until, until I read your book. But that one of the things happening during this whole period, and, and arguably even happening to some degree today, but, but particularly mid-century, mid-20th century America, is you have a lot of black money uh, from black communities going into white-owned banks because white-owned banks, they've been historically safer, they, they're bigger, they, they, they can do more. And then the white-owned banks turn around and because investing in the black community is unprofitable for all kinds of different reasons, many of them related to policy, they turn around and they take that money and they use it to create more wealth in white communities. So it isn't just that, that the black money is not when it's saved creating wealth in the black community. It's that it's actually being you know, used to create yet more wealth um, and yet more of a wealth gap with the white community. Can you tell some of that story and why that was happening? Yeah. I mean, this is what I try to show in the book is by following the money and the balance sheets and the banks, you're actually able to see how wealth accumulates unto to itself, right? I mean, so I 
I, you know, I love, yeah, I respect Hamilton's idea of national banking, but this is where Jefferson uh, uh, was right here in his fears, not in his prescriptions, but Thomas Jefferson worried that once you had um, these money centers, right, in New York and Chicago, all of the wealth in America would go there and to, would leave these sort of rural areas. And that's essentially what you've seen happening. Now, you know, I've, I've wrestled with this in, in, in my first book about how, how to fix it, whether it's a Jeffersonian solution or a Hamiltonian one. And I sort of lean toward Hamilton, which is sort of national banking, public banking. But, but the idea here is central to understanding banking policy is money likes more money, right? Capital likes to accumulate unto itself. And so when you have a white dominant banking system, you know, holding value, the capital in these white homes that are retaining their value or white businesses that are retaining their value, any effort by black bankers or black businesses to draw some of that capital out is like working against a magnet. The pull of the network of banking and the the pull of capital sort of, you know, wanting more capital unto itself is going to work against that. And so you see, you know, I follow these bank balance sheets and show how, you know, you can take deposits from blacks in the community and you can lend to blacks. But as soon as that kind of gets mixed into the the whole pie, it it leaves, it sort of leaks out of your community. And and another way, I mean, the, the credit market that we didn't talk about is not just the mortgages, right? There's this whole other layer of credit allocation that was so much more of a salient feature during the civil rights era that we don't talk about as much anymore, although I think we're starting to again, is that once you have a community that is deprived of wealth through either mortgage wealth or other uh, business wealth, you also have, without sort of even the, the racism of the FHA maps, created on top of that is this, what I call a Jim Crow credit market, right? So in the white suburbs in like Levittown, because you've got wealth, you have credit cards, which is revolving credit, right? You're, these merchants and these department stores are able to give the sub, their suburban shoppers credit cards that they can use anywhere. It's flexible. It's low interest because what those credit issuers are able to do is to sell off that risk into the secondary market and reduce that risk. And so you have this lowering of risk and therefore the lowering of interest in the suburbs. What you have in the black ghetto is a cordoning off of the riskiest credit borrowers of the whole community. And so when you cordon off that risk, any creditor into that market is going to be forced to um, charge more. And so what you had building up while the, you know, white suburbs are getting credit cards and revolving credit, you have in the black ghetto this installment credit sector. And so you buy your refrigerator and your TV and your furniture from this uh, installment lender. And they, you know, use these contracts where if you miss one payment, you lose it all. And the, the payments are way more than the people in the suburbs are paying. And the, the stuff is crappier. And so there's all of these studies that show this, right, that come out in the, in the mid-60s. And, and this is where, you know, post-civil rights era, the story gets really complicated as you have these riots and protests in these areas. It wasn't new, but it was the first time the nation sort of started paying attention and said, hey, What's going on in the North? You know, I mean, we did this whole Montgomery bus, bus boycott. You got the Voting Rights Act. We did the Selma Bridge. Now, all of a sudden, you know, Watts and Newark and, and Chicago are, are, are uh, burning up in riots. And, and the idea was that there was this other means of exploitation, and it was through credit. And you have these, um, you know, solutions that are being offered. And, and I think this is one of the, the, the pivot points in banking history and civil rights history that, that we ignore is what you know, um, Richard Nixon does with that 
er, what they call an urban crisis. You know, Alan Greenspan, the free market fundamentalist, is his advisor. And he says, look, you can't do reparations. That's anti-capitalist. Back to Andrew Johnson. You can't do reparations and you can't do integration because you're never going to win an election. I mean, your whole Southern strategy was anti-integration. And so the best thing to do is to just give capitalism. Uh, right. And what that means is nothing. And this is what uh, Richard Nixon does in this program of, of black capitalism. And what he does is say, OK, it seems like they're kind of pissed off at the lenders. And so uh, looks like they're pissed off because those lenders are white. So we're just going to throw some more black lenders into the mix instead of changing the whole lending scenario, which was very much a um, not about racism. It was really about the, the difference in credit mechanisms. And and this was the response. And I think this is something that's a legacy that we're still dealing with, this idea that, OK, well, Black banks will fix this huge macro problem that social policy created. And I think this is the hustle. This is the the bait and switch. And, and you know, I call it a, a decoy that we haven't co come to terms with. This is the other plank in Nixon's Southern strategy is first is law and order. And the second is black capitalism. And and, and we don't talk about this latter one nearly enough, I think. So possibly um, unexpectedly post offices will fix it. <laughs> but before we get to that, because uh, I very much want to talk to you about that, uh, I want to do this as a bridge. We've been talking here a lot about America's past. Um, and I think a, a reasonable question folks might have is, well, how much is that – are these things true in America's present? But, but you write that as a group, blacks are unbanked or underbanked uh, more than any other race. Sixty percent of the black population modern black population is unbanked or underbanked, while only 20 percent of whites are in the same category. What does it mean to be unbanked or underbanked? So unbanked and underbanked means that um, likely you live in a, a place that is not serviced by banks. So this is where the last 30 years have led to this conglomeration of of banks and this shutting down of unprofitable branches. And so you've got, you know, banking deserts in rural areas, but mostly also in, in urban areas where black and brown people live. So there aren't banks. And even if there were banks, banks don't offer small bank accounts. So if you're poor and you don't have that much to, to save, banks don't like those customers. This is the other thing that I think banks, people don't understand about banks is your deposits are bank liabilities. They lose money um, if your deposits are below a certain threshold. Unless a bank has a bunch of your money, which they can lend out, and a bunch of mo your money, by the way, that, that you can keep there and not keep pulling out, which is what rich people can do, which is what poor people cannot do, banks have to spend money in overhead servicing those accounts. And so what you've seen is either they pull out of regions that are poor, or they stop their free checking account, as you know, Bank of America has recently done, or they give you fees, right? So the second you overdraft, you know, $35 fee and then another and then another. And and the, and the, what they're doing here is they're repelling a certain type of customer. And so a lot of people have just made the very rational choice, like, I'm just not going to deal with the banks because they don't want my money. They're not making it convenient for me. They're just charging me randomly. So they uh, either become unbanked or underbanked, which is maybe I'll have a bank account, but usually I'm going to use some other service provider. And so what are these other service providers? You've got, you know, check cashers. You have, you know, Western Union, the remittance that you're sending money and then you've got payday lenders. And these are non-banks that are not supported by federal uh, banking subsidies, which banks are. And they charge, you know, huge rates for everything. So cashing a check is using, you know, this, these alternative means um, just to use your money. It's like 10% of your income. And then payday loans, right? If you take out a payday loan, you end up, um, you know, revolving the loan, so taking it out something like an average of eight to 10 times. And so you needed $500 to fix your car. And 
after a couple months, you've paid 2000 and you know, you still haven't paid off the, the, the loan. And so this is the way in which debt just sharpens the edges of, of poverty and lack of wealth. And most poor communities are poor across the board. And so if maybe you or I needed a thousand dollars, we could go to a parent or a friend. And a lot of these communities, that isn't a resource. And so you see payday lenders spotting all of these areas where regular lenders um, uh, refuse to serve. One lesson that I want to draw out because I've reported on social policy for a long time and something you see again and again and again and again everywhere is that it is incredibly expensive to be poor, Mm -hmm. that when you are poor, you just pay more for everything. And the very things that it almost means to be poor, like your, your, your income is more volatile and so sometimes you can't make a payment, you get hit with higher penalties when you can't make a payment. I mean the whole thing is set up in part because uh, a lot of institutions for rational economic reasons do not want poor customers unless they're going to be really, really, really reliable. The disincentives are set up or the penalties are set up or the, just the initial cost is set up so that the poor end up paying a lot more for access to basic banking and credit services, for the things they buy, for all kinds of things in their life than the rich do. I mean, you go into a hospital uninsured, Mm -hmm. and if you have to pay the cost of your operation, of your appendectomy, you're going to pay four times what an insured person pays. It is cheaper, literally cheaper, to get health care as an insured person, not just because of your insurance, but because of the the price the insurance negotiated with the hospital. So I just want to draw that out for a minute because it is like it is a foundational bit of unfairness in our society that the poor end up paying more for everything despite having less money than anyone else. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think this is the problem. I think a lot of people don't understand the reality of being poor. You know, I think we we kind of get that it's a lack of money. But it's not just a lack of money. It is a lack of, you know, uh, justice. It is a lack of, um, you know, mental bandwidth to to have to have a, a life. I mean, it's not just the the expense of having to go to a check casher. So, so I'll tell you a story. I came to, um, I moved to Athens, Georgia, and I set up my uh, water account. You had to, to go to a water office and and set up the account. And when I got there, there was this line out the door um, of of people, and I, I, you know, I stayed in the line, but I got kind of pulled in the back. And I'm like, what do you want? And I said, I need to set up my water. So I went to the back set up my water account, um, put it on auto pay. And I'm walking out and I'm like, well, what's this line for? And they're like, oh, these are the people that have to come in with cash on their lunch break to pay their water bill. And it just, I mean, and I work in this and it had never occurred to me that part of not having a bank account means that you have to use your lunch hour to go to the water office to pay your water bill, which also means that you have to go to the electricity office and you have to go to your cell phone office and you have to go to your cable office and every other node uh, that my bank just takes care of free of charge you have to go do physically right not to mention that that bandwidth that is left sort of psychological bandwidth that is left for uh, people who are in debt constantly that's not just okay well uh, it's a balance sheet item right i'm in debt it is a, a psychological burden that i think people don't understand i mean living you know paycheck to paycheck and then owing to a payday lender you know you don't have all that much um you know, mental bandwidth and willpower to spend on, you know, the stresses of parenting, uh, you know, helping your kids out with schoolwork, all of that stuff that depletes me at the end of the day. Imagine if 90% of your willpower and mental energy were going to these other things that you and I just don't worry about. I mean, these are the psychological tolls of poverty that we don't think about. And there's a lot of great research being done now in showing exactly this, like how 
those tolls come come out in ways that you would never imagine, right? You know, in in uh, weight, in in making bad diet decisions, in making parenting decisions, and 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 I know what that's like. I mean, times in my life where I've been stressed about something, where something is just you know on the back burner, just stressing you out. You're making uh, all sorts of maybe not wise decisions and everything else. And not to say again that this is a decision making problem, but I think poverty and and the mental strains of that affect so many other things um, that we tend to not equate with just the lack of money. I really love the way you put this. I just want to add one more finding onto this because, I don't know, the, I could do a 10-part series of shows yeah. here. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a big study of a randomized controlled study, so the gold standard study of Medicaid in Oregon. And like in, a, in an amazingly American thing, Oregon got space for, I believe it was adding 10,000 people to Medicaid. But the number of people who should have qualified for Medicaid in Oregon was much higher than that. So they held because like this is America, the richest country the world has ever known. They held a lottery. You got to enter a lottery to see if you would get Medicaid that you qualified for. So anyway, the researchers take both sides of this and like look at the people who got the Medicaid and look at the people who didn't. And, you know, there's a lot of things they find. But the biggest thing they find um, and the thing that was most unexpected was Medicaid getting a Medicaid card had an extraordinary effect on your mental health. All of a sudden, your subjective well-being, the amount of depression you experience, anxiety you experience, it just plummets. It was actually the biggest effect. It was much bigger than any of the immediate effects on your actual health outcomes. And it wasn't that these people were getting antidepressants or Xanax. As far as we can tell, just not being afraid that something was going wrong or that something that was already going wrong couldn't be treated was just such a weight off of people that it was transformative for just how they felt about their lives. It's transformative not just for how they felt about their health care, but whether or not if you ask them, are you depressed, they said yes or no. To, to me, that is such a, a, a powerful finding um, th- that I've never – it's always really stuck with me um, as something we really underrate. There's, I mean there's even like the ability to plan into the, into the future, right? Poor people, it's, mm-hmm. it's difficult to make plans um, if you're – um, struggling. I mean, I, I, I've lived this in a way. I mean, I, my family came as immigrants. Um, you know, one of these immigrants that I think John Kelly would rather not have, right. Um, from another country. I didn't know any English, um, learned it fast, but you know, we lived on the financial, and this is what interests me in this work is I've lived both lives. I mean, I came here, we were very poor. We moved around a ton. We always lived in really sketchy neighborhoods, went to, you know, not great public schools and, and then all of a sudden, uh, when I was sort of graduating high school, my dad retrained as a doctor. He he was a doctor in a country that we came from. And and it was just like a fog lifted. All of a sudden, I could make plans with my life. I, I had this buffer that I didn't realize was lacking. I mean, I, I think that's the thing about being in the middle class is you don't realize all of the things you don't have to worry about. And I I remember just going from one year to the next, just having a completely different outlook on life. Like, oh, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to do this stuff and and there will be this net to catch me when I fall. Going from not having that to having that, I never look at poverty. I've never looked at it the same way. It is much more comprehensive than than I think people give it credit for. All right. So now I want to take the final step here to to postal banking. This is something that I think initially if people here, we should turn the nation's post offices into banks. (laughs) It it, it seems like maybe a weird idea, but I know it's an idea that's been around for a while. I know it's one that you're advising Senator Kirsten Gillibrand on. Make the case to me. Why should should post offices be banks? 
Yes. Okay. So one thing I want to say is about the post office. This is the most unfairly maligned agency in the in the country. The post office literally laid the tracks, roads, air routes on which our democracy has been laid on. From 1792, the Postal Act of 1792, which all of the founding fathers signed, the idea of the post office was the most democratic institution that we had. So the idea was that you would serve every community regardless of cost. So you would build these tracks into these random communities because it was better for the nation to do so, right? So when Alexis de Tocqueville comes to America to marvel at our democracy, he regards this, the post office, and the dissemination of newspapers that was subsidized through the post office as a, one of the reasons why our democracy was so robust and a logger in rural Michigan knew what was going on in D.C. So I, so I just want to say that, and, 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 and that the post office has adapted over the centuries as technological changes have shifted. But you have seen over the last decade this undermining of the post office. And most of this is political. They're saying, oh, well, it's, it's an outdated business model. It's no longer working. Most of that, the ma large majority of that was a political decision made in the early 2000s that the post office would have to pre-fund all of their pensions. And so that gave them an immediate $6 billion shortfall that they're still recovering from. So with that premise in mind, that the post office still manages, by the way, to deliver mail to every mailbox in the country every day. So the post office is not this old, dusty institution that should go the way of all, all, all these other things. I mean, that would be a real American tragedy. So then the postal banking, right? So ever since 1871, we've had proposals for postal banking. And the idea, again, was to provide banking services to these areas that banks didn't want to go. In Great Britain and in Japan and Germany, a lot of post offices had, had been doing this even in the 1800s. And the United States, after a particularly bad banking panic in 1907, Taft put postal banking on his agenda and got it passed in 1910. So from 1910 until 1966, we had postal banking in the United States. And it was hugely successful. And it was successful because it was safe and it was available to all sorts of people. I mean, immigrants took to this, you know, Italians and all of these people that were coming who didn't speak English, the post office offer services in a bunch of different languages. And so the idea here is to revive this and, and fill in those gaps that have been left by the banking sector. And again, I want to get back to the premise of why should the government do this? Because the government already buoys up the banking sector. So this is, this is not, you know, some uh, new subsidy. This is just a public option that gets rid of the middleman who refuses to sort of bank half the population. So, um, so the post office would offer a small savings account, right? So, um, Someone who has $1,000 saved up, but who doesn't, you know, can't put that in a bank because they're worried about the fees or there isn't a bank close by, just puts that in the post office. And once you do that, then you're put into a digital uh, frame, right? So you have an online checking account and all of your, your water bill, your electricity bill, all of these things that you, ha you would have to do in cash before just get done through that debit card. And that, I think, would diminish the need even for payday lending because there's all of these studies that show that if you have a buffer of even $500 to $1,000, you don't need these emergency loans, right? A lot of people who don't have bank accounts end up putting their money in, in hard cash and currency under their mattresses. I mean, literally. And this is money that, it, you know, can get stolen and can get spent. And so just offering people a, a saving mechanism that is cheap um, would get rid of 90% of the costs and, and problems of, of these things. And then you could also offer um, small loans that would be Along the payday model, but with much less interest. And uh, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Warren, by the way, who's been on this for a while, I've talked with her group and, and uh, Senator Sanders had also backed up a, a model like this. And I think that this is something that people who believe in 
the government as I do as an institution that not only can address market failure, because I don't think this is market failure. I actually think it's market success. I mean, I think banks have figured out a way to make a profit and it's not to serve the poor. And so, you know, uh, to the extent that we back up banks through all of these mechanisms, we're just going to give it directly to the people who need it. So the first when people hear about it, they're like, this is crazy. But then I think when they really hear about it more, they're like, oh, this is obvious. So I've heard both. And I and I think it's obvious. I really do. I mean, as you know, having read Color of Money, I don't end that racial wealth gap book with a solution. My first book, uh, How the Other Half Banks, I just stumbled into this postal banking history. It was not something I was aware of. And the more I kind of wrestled with the solution, I was like, this makes so much sense that I, you know, and the book ended up becoming about the solution uh, as opposed to just laying out the problem, because I think there's really so little downside. So let me ask you um, one key question here, which is that there's one way of looking at this idea, which is, hey, the Postal Service, which tries to be reasonably profitable, uh, as I understand it. You know, there's a lot of upset right now that some of the things they're doing don't make enough money, even though at other points that wasn't really the concern. You can do this uh, and you can see it as a way to give a dying or aging government bureaucracy like a new function with which it can become more economically viable. Or you can do this and you say this is a public service, a public option. The point of it is not to be profitable. It's to perform a, a social service. You come down on the latter side of this, even though a lot of people in this space have argued for the um, former, for the making it a profit-seeking operation. Tell me about why you why you think this shouldn't be about profit, why you should have loans, even if those loans are not going to pay off. I actually think that it's dangerous to go in for the profit, but my whole thinking on this is that it would be both. I don't see this as a zero-sum game. I don't see the government public option thing as a pure subsidy, a pure loss. The way that I have tried to articulate this and to set it up through legislation I've helped create is that it would do both. It would be self-sustaining um, and so bring in enough profits that the, that the post office would be just fine and also a boon to uh, these borrowers, right? So it's not profiting off the backs of the poor um, just to save a dying institution because I believe in public-private partnerships and I believe in public institutions being able to be smart and profitable and using their um, advantages, their market advantages. So the post office has scale and it's got scope. It can cross-subsidize this product. So so I, I actually think economically this is a self-sustaining profit. I mean, look at what Walmart is able to do. I think Walmart's the other big – Walmart and Amazon are the other big competitors in this market is Walmart, you know, offers low check cashing products and, and remittance products, and it's way below market, and it's not a loss leader. It's not as though you're, you know, bringing in people so that they can spend at Walmart. It's actually profitable. And the reason they can underprice – is because they have a lot of other things going on and their their footprint is large across the country. And this is the post office. So I actually think the post office can underprice the market on this and also make a profit. So I don't think you have to choose a well-designed government program. Again, back to the FHA, like the FHA was able to create wealth, fix a massive social problem, and to be spectacularly profitable. I think this is the vision that I believe in progressive reforms that are smart, that understand uh, the market, but also under have more vision beyond just arguing with uh, libertarians uh, on their terms. I think, you know, the second we talk about what it's going to cost instead of what it's going to profit everybody, 
then we've lost the debate. I think that the, the, the focus I'd like to see is, okay, if this works, how will this be profitable for everybody? The Walmart example, though, it shows how difficult the political economy of this is because Walmart, as you say, has a lot of these same functions. It's in a lot of the same places. It has a comfort level among the people who need to be coming in. It's a very, very effective pricer. They tried to get a banking license to come into this market, and they were they were stopped. If Walmart had gotten that license, would that have solved the problem? Because if so, that just that implies. But what if the the left just began to join to to create pressure to give Walmart that that license, and then they can go do this, and that might have a strange bedfellows political coalition that that would be easier than than postal banking itself. Yeah. So here's where I'm going to part ways and and piss off your um left uh, supporters here because I actually think Walmart could do this and I think Walmart would have done it. I, I you know, I've written about actually the Walmart bid to get a bank. It was a, a Utah industrial loan company that's this loophole that is still highly profitable and the banking sector. I mean, if you if you wonder who has political clout in this country, look at how the independent bankers or the community bankers of America, it's called ICBA, uh, Independent Community Bankers of America Lobby, throws its weight around. They were able to shut down Walmart. They able, they're able to get the things that they need to done. So Walmart was not able to do it, but they're still able to offer these loans. So you don't actually need a banking charter. So yes, I think Walmart can do it. Yes, Walmart can underprice it. And yes, it's way better to do Walmart than these payday lenders because the cost is just less. But is this a product that we want to outsource to Walmart? Do we trust Walmart not to control this market and then raise its prices like it's done in other sectors. And, you know, the reality is that Walmart's not everywhere. It's certainly not in inner cities that that are, you know, the magnets of these payday lenders. So Walmart, while I concede fixes this problem in some areas, um, the post office is in, you know, almost every zip code. And the post office is a, a institution that I actually would prefer to save as opposed to give more money to Walmart. So so I so I I'm not going to make an argument as to why Walmart can't do it. I just think you know, this is a, a policy choice. And I would like to I'd like to see the post office compete with Walmart and show that it can do this better, because if a Walmart employee, because you see these arguments against the post office, well, post office employees aren't trained to do banking. Well, is Walmart um, are Walmart check cashers any more trained than than postal employers who are, by the way, unionized and, you know, do a How lot terrible of other... that we might need to create new, reasonably well-skilled jobs in post offices. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think every argument that you take against the post office, you can back up with, well, Walmart employees do it. Why shouldn't postal workers be able to do that very same thing? And I think, you know, you do have the largest unionized worker base. And and the unions have been pushing for postal banking. Both APWU and the NALC are uh, behind this. And and because they think that this is going to be profitable and, and help them to save the post office. One of the things I see in your work here uh, is that I think a lot of progressives have complicated feelings about banking and the credit market, not in a specific way, but just symbolically. Banks are not that popular among the left. Um, credit is, you know, often thought of in its usurious payday lender, you know, credit card fees kind of forms. And something that, that you've really emphasized in, in some of your other papers is that banking should be seen as a social contract, that, that it always has been, that there's been an implicit, sometimes explicit government role to, to get banks to, to do the things the government wanted to do publicly. And that it, one, one thing that I see as a kind of a meta project of your work is getting people who are concerned about the, the fate of the poor to give a lot more focus to what kinds of, how many kinds of, and what the terms of 
the banking and credit services they can access are. So, so I'd like as we sort of come to a close here for you just to, to articulate that case explicitly. Should do, do people who care about the country's poorest need to begin thinking about their banking condition as a much higher priority objective than they do now? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, yes, I'm so glad you asked this question because I think this is the main thrust of, of my work is that we have sort of exported, punted this, uh, you know, monetary policy and banking policy to technocrats and experts and and economists who have these models. And, and those models are more often than not wrong. So when Greenspan is famously sort of, you know, brought to task during the financial crisis and, and they're saying, you know, well, your, your models were wrong, you know, and he's like, yeah, there was a flaw in the model. And people focused on this idea that, you know, the flaw. But I want to focus on the model. We have had economists modeling um, banking uh, and monetary policy instead of really embedding it in history and um, psychology and and just um, social policy. And this is a very new thing that's happened. I think it started in the Greenspan era and has certainly continued. This idea that banking and monetary policy is only for technology technical, you know, people and economists and, and the quants with the models. And and this is where um, we, we part ways with American history, because American history shows a very robust conversation throughout time, starting with Hamilton and Jefferson. But, you know, William Jennings Bryan talking about the cross of gold, that was a monetary policy speech. He's saying, you know, the gold standard is killing the farmers in, in this country. You know, it's, it's putting us on a cross of gold. You have a Brandeis saying, Banks are essentially public utilities. They're using other people's money to make profits. You've got FDR. You know, when he says the only thing you have to fear is fear itself, he's talking about bank runs. You've got Woodrow Wilson with the Federal Reserve and this, this populism and a federalism that, that comes out in banking policy. And then, you know, obviously Hamilton and Jefferson and these, these debates that were very robust. And then at some point, you know, call it neoliberalism or call it, you know, free market orthodoxy, you've got this takeover of the the technical types who say, well, monetary policy isn't for the lighthearted. And so if you have an econ degree and you have models and you have numbers, then you can engage in this discussion. But, but, you know, banking is not a discussion about just numbers. It is a discussion about um, trust in social institutions. It's a discussion about policy, how banks allocate credit is very much a public policy decision, how much unemployment to tolerate, how uh, loose we want the money. I mean, we don't have the gold standard anymore, right? So a lot of the monetary determinations come on just social policy. And I think some people hate that, but that's the that's the truth. And so I would love to see more progressives, and you're starting to see it more, but uh, more progressives to engage in these monetary banking discussions as opposed to leaving it to technocrats. Because again, the the history of technocrats getting this right is is abysmal. They just don't get it right. And and because they're focused myopically on the models, that they miss uh, the trends and the reality that it's very much a social policy, right? Banks operate using other people's money. They they use the federal government. I mean, look at how many supports there are for banks. There's FDIC insurance that make it make us trust banks in the first place, right? Um, there is Federal Reserve liquidity, not to mention bailouts that come in and save the banks you know, ex post, there are, you know, these FHA credits, there's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that, you know, we have this, these conversations, but all of these federal policies that that relate to banking and and we need to be talking about that more as decisions that the voters get to make. And, and I think a lot of the blowback against the elites has been on the banking sector because, yeah, you know, during the bailout, I think everyone was mad 
but you didn't really know who to point your finger at. And so I think a lot of people said, okay, well, it's poor people's fault and it's immigrants' fault. And then some people said it's the bankers' fault. And I actually think both are wrong. It wasn't either. It was the system that we created, but it takes some nuanced thinking and a little bit of technical understanding to understand why that system doesn't work the way it should. I want to ask you before I go the, the final question we always do, which is what are three books on, on this or other topics that, that you've read that have influenced you that you would uh, recommend to the audience? Okay, this is a dangerous question because I love books and book recommendations are my favorite. But I thought about this a lot. And one of the, the books that I just read recently um, that I loved, not related to my work, is um, The Human Instinct by Kenneth Miller. And he really um, just talks about you know evolutionary science and, and undercuts some of these wild speculations of evolutionary psychology. Um, the other that I would recommend is, I mean, anything by Robert Caro, but Master of the Senate is my favorite of the Johnson series. I mean, I think everyone should read the Johnson series just to understand politics, but also how a good historian and writer dissects uh, history. And then um, Zadie Smith is my favorite author and has written a really great book of um, nonfiction, uh, Feel Free. And there's one essay early on about public libraries, and I think it's just brilliant. And uh, all the essays are, as is everything she writes. Marissa Baradaran, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Marissa for, for being here. Um, please, if you're listening to this, check out our Netflix episode, Explained. You'll hear more from her. You'll hear the extraordinary story of what happened when Cory Booker's family tried to buy a home. You'll see and hear so much more on this. Um, it, it really, I think, is worth your time. Thank you as always to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Fox Media podcast production, and we will be back next week. Thank you.